Hello and welcome back to Ministry to State's Bible Study through the book of Daniel. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, and today we are going to be looking at the sixth chapter of Daniel. This chapter concludes the historical narrative portion of Daniel and includes what is perhaps the most famous episode in the entire book, Daniel in the Lion's Den. As we end this portion of the book and conclude next week with the prophetic visions, I want to begin by drawing our attention to four features of this story which reveal themselves throughout. The first is pilgrimage. Daniel lived the majority of his life as a pilgrim in Babylon, and even though he was a high-ranking official, his life was as susceptible to the winds of change as are ours, perhaps more so. And yet this knowledge of being a pilgrim sustained him throughout his life. The second is prayer. The action which got him into trouble was his faithfulness to prayer to his God. Sadly, we often view prayer as something innocuous when in fact it is indeed a powerful act. The third is the encouragement this story has been to those facing persecution in the church throughout history. The faithfulness of Daniel has inspired countless Christians in the face of persecution. The fourth and final feature is the contrast between the decree of Darius and the law of the living God. In chapter 6, the decree of Darius and the law of God come into conflict with each other. And how does Daniel choose to act? With these four features in mind, pilgrimage, prayer, encouragement, and the living God, we will begin our study. To continue with the previous format, and hopefully to provide a helpful structure, this chapter is divided into five parts. We begin with part one, Daniel 6, 1 through 9. Our introduction to Darius came at the end of Daniel 5 and verse 31, where we read that after he defeated Belshazzar, he ruled over the region of Babylon. And now in chapter 6, he sets to work in organizing and structuring his kingdom. We read that he set up 120 satraps. As for the exact job description of someone with this position, we are unsure, but it seems to be something of a generic appointed official. They do not appear to be military commanders, but rather what we might call bureaucrats. That is, they were appointed officials charged with the task of operating the smooth flow of some portion of Darius's government. Over these satraps, Darius set three officials who would then report directly to him. Of these three officials, Daniel was one. In this capacity, Daniel served with such faithfulness that he was soon to be placed as the chief ranking official over the entire kingdom. It was this that seems to have set off Daniel's enemies to plot his demise. We read in verse 5 how these high officials and satraps knew the only way Daniel could possibly be found a criminal was through the violation of some law pertaining to the worship of his God. Here we begin to see something of the pilgrim status Daniel viewed himself as having. In terms of work and ethic, Daniel was excellent. In a sense, he blended in to what would have been the ideal for a Persian official. In terms of worship, however, he stood out in stark contrast. Even though Daniel worked faithfully where he was called, it did not consume him entirely. His work flowed from his worship of God. Away from his true home, Daniel was a pilgrim and would remain so until God restored his people to their land. In reaction to Daniel's worship of the true God, these men tell the king that he, quote, should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. End quote. This decree is aimed right at Daniel's jugular, 
and Darius naively accepts. At this point, it's a good idea to make clear that this order was not intended to assign to Darius the status of a deity. While pertaining to religious acts, it is primarily a civil decree. To quote from one scholar, quote, Most likely, Darius viewed this law as a political rather than a religious edict, a means of uniting the realm by identifying himself as the sole mediator between the people and the gods, the source of their every blessing, end quote. That is, by making himself the central figure of the lives of his people for a period of 30 days, Darius sought to unite all the realm around him. Lucas observes that this portion of the story serves to remind us of the dangers of the state claiming to mediate all sources of blessing. Now we turn to part 2, Daniel 6.10. While only one verse, I wanted to set it aside on its own. In the eyes of the high officials and satraps, the plan appeared to be working perfectly. Darius signed the decree, and Daniel continued to do what Daniel always did three times a day. Pray before an open window to his God. In verse 10 we read, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. I would like to look at three elements to this verse. The first sets the foreground for the remainder of the verse, and it is that Daniel went and prayed in light of the knowledge of the danger he was in. The choice to return to his house and pray after the signing of the document was not a coincidence. This was courageous faithfulness, but it wasn't showy. Notice that Daniel didn't pray differently after the signing. He continued to do as he always had done. The second is that Daniel prayed with an open window towards Jerusalem. This helps us understand what was Daniel's hope all along while in exile. For decades, he served foreign governments. In terms of resume, his entire life was given to pagan regimes. But what we see in this verse is that while his resume was in one place, his hope was someplace else. Praying towards Jerusalem was not an act of nostalgia. As much as Daniel longed for the restoration of the city of David... The direction of his face was about something more than sweet memories. Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem because he believed that God was a God who kept his promises and that one day he would restore that city and establish it forever. His was a posture of hope. We'll see more of this next week in the function of apocalyptic visions. The third is that Daniel's prayer was one of thanks and protest. The cool calmness of Daniel is something to behold. In the face of death, Daniel thanks his God because he is confident that his God will ultimately restore all things. But it is also a prayer of protest because in his prayer, Daniel demonstrates who is the actual and ultimate authority. He reminds us who is truly sovereign. No matter how benevolent Darius could be, he was infinitely less gracious than the giver of all good gifts. His prayer was a protest against the proposed glories of the earthly kingdoms. Even as a high-ranking official, Daniel gave thanks to the one who gives all things. There is so much more that could be said about prayer, but we will get to that in the conclusion. Now we turn to part 3, Daniel 6, 11-18. Even though these men have Daniel trapped, they are still concerned that Darius might change his mind concerning the decree. And so in approaching the king, they do not blurt out, Daniel violated your command. Instead, they first ask the king to restate the decree to them, and after he has done so, they then tell of Daniel's fatal crime. Upon hearing that Daniel has violated the law and is therefore condemned, the king is greatly distressed. 
In verse 14, we are shown that Darius spent the entire night attempting to find some sort of loophole that would allow Daniel to escape. But there was nothing he could do. His much-loved servant was about to be devoured by a den of hungry lions. The following morning, Daniel was brought to be tossed into the lion's den, but not before Darius said, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. His faithfulness to God was already making an impact on the king. That constant faithfulness of Daniel served as a witness to the watching world. Throughout the story of God's people, Daniel in the den of lions has served as a great comfort to those facing persecution. During the terrible persecution of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes, the book of Daniel provided comfort. To those Christians facing persecution in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, Daniel provided comfort. And there are perhaps countless examples of precious martyrs with stories untold who were nourished by the story of Daniel. And considering this, we should understand that these men and women found comfort in this story, not because Daniel miraculously escaped, but because Daniel's faithfulness was to a faithful God. They did not believe that by identifying with the story of Daniel in the lion's den that they would magically be delivered from their suffering, but rather they found hope, comfort, and assurance in the fact that they were trusting and loving the same God as Daniel, a faithful God who loves his people. Daniel believed in the ultimate goodness, loveliness of God, and it was that that supported him. Now we turn to part four, Daniel six nineteen through 24. After a restless night and little sleep, King Darius rushed to the pit wherein he had thrown Daniel. The first words out of his mouth were surely hoping against hope. Quote, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? End quote. Notice that he puts in the form of a question what he had wished for Daniel in verse 16. Daniel responded to the king that he is in fact alive and that God had preserved him and that he had not dishonored the king. His words portray two things to the king. First, that it was by the good grace of God that he survived. As is typical when Daniel spoke, he did not attempt to take praise for himself. But there is also a second element. Daniel reminds the king that he was blameless before God and had not dishonored the king. This raises an interesting question concerning how we are to view those laws and government. We believe that government has been instituted by God for the flourishing of people. Furthermore, government is not a temporal arrangement in the interim between the fall and new creation. No, there will always be government, but in the new heavens and new earth, the ruler will be King Jesus. This does not minimize the importance of civil government today, but rather enhances the importance of the role they hold. To put things simply before moving on to the last section, there are two instances wherein it is appropriate to, base, to disobey civil government. That is, when they command something God forbids, or when they forbid something God commands. And the decree by Darius committed both. Daniel chose for his loyalty to be to the living God instead of the faulty and sinful decree of Darius. We now turn to the final ver four verses in part five, Daniel 6, 25 through 28. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, King Darius issued a statement to, quote, all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, end quote. As we have said before, this is to clue us in that God is working to undo the curse of Babel, an undoing that will finally be done at Pentecost. What Darius declared is that the God of Daniel was the living God. We should note that this sets the God of Israel in marked separation from the pagan idols of the other nations of the earth. Our God is living and active. Lastly, the final verse tells us that, quote, 
Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. End quote. Truthfully, I believe what is described of Daniel is something that we all desire. As people of God, we want to know how we can prosper in exile. The world as it stands is not our home. We are called to make it fit for a king, but as it is now is not as it shall be. Daniel offers us instruction in the four areas mentioned above. He remembered that he was a pilgrim, called to be a blessing to all people. He believed that his God was the ultimate authority to whom he was answerable. He adhered to the law of the living God and allowed that to flow down and inform his adherence to the laws of man. And lastly, Daniel believed in the power of prayer. And we will discuss that in our conclusion. To close, before I went to college, I took a gap year and studied at a Bible school in England. During one of our lectures, the instructor remarked, Prayer is not preparation for the greater good, but it is the greatest good. While we might nod our heads in agreement, our actions or lack of prayer actions might betray something else. Prayer is often confusing and difficult. It's easy to feel stuck in prayer, that maybe it doesn't make any difference, or that perhaps I could be doing something better with my time. I would like to offer insights from a few Christians on prayer that help us in our prayer lives. I share these things as someone who is learning to pray, and far from a mighty prayer warrior, as we might say. First, when we are learning to pray, we take comfort in the fact that prayer happens because God has initiated the act. Without God taking the first step, we would not be able to approach. One theologian wrote, quote, We listen to God's word only because it is God's. Even in the unveiled sight of eternity, we shall never see God in any other way but in his sovereign, incomprehensible self-revelation in which he gives himself, stepping forth out of unapproachable being and bridging the infinite chasm which separates us from him. What a joyful thing to consider that God wants us to be in his presence. Second, we pray in the company of Jesus. Like his disciples, we ask Jesus how to pray. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are not alone. To quote from Eugene Peterson, quote, Jesus is more than a master to whom we apprentice ourselves. He is even now praying for us. This may be the most important thing to know, not how he prayed, although that is certainly important, but that he is at this very moment praying for us, end quote. What a comfort it is to remember that Jesus is with us in our praying. We pray expectantly that Jesus hears our prayers in the presence of the Father. I would like to leave you with a final quote from Tim Keller in his book, Prayer. Quote, Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to, end quote. To be human is to pray. To pray is to be human. I hope our prayer lives are enriched in that we take all our joys and sorrows before the throne of God. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week as we look at part seven and the final part in our series.